Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Alright, today's teaching text comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 26. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I, I must confess, I'm, I'm very intimidated by being here. Uh, I was telling my wife that I was coming to Union Square to preach, and she was like, hey, that's one of our first dates that we've ever had was at Union Square. And then I was like, it was one of our first dates, and it was a horrible date. <laughs> because I, I still remember really clearly, and it kind of makes me feel, because you are all, like, incredibly good-looking. <laughs> like... Like, every time someone walked in, I was like, please, let just there be one person that looks like me. And, uh, and everyone was so attractive. And, and it reminded me of this day, because I remember we were on a day, we are in Union Square, it was a really beautiful summer day, and we heard music. And then I was like, where's that music coming from? And we're looking, and there's a crowd, and we walk over there, and, and all of a sudden, as we're getting closer, it's this uh, Asian guy with this straw hat. And he's wearing this, like, leather vest and nothing else. I mean, pants, too, but nothing else but <laughs> just his, uh, his, his leather vest. And I noticed, like, his, he had, like, abs. Like, and he was glimmering with sweat, and he was just, like, playing. His voice was beautiful. Everything was amazing. And then I turned to my then-girlfriend, uh, and she was like this. <laughs> and I go, uh, Jamie. Can you, and then you know, and her perfect response was, you are staring too. <laughs> so I'm coming at this kind of a recalling a memory in Union Square, uh, but it's great to be here because I've prayed for your church from afar. In many ways, looking through Instagram and talking to Russell over the year, I've learned to love you as well. But now to be here at Actual in Flesh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, Russell loves you. He loves this church. And he didn't tell you this up here, but there's days that he wept. Um, not just for the hardship, but the hardship that was driven by love. Love for the gospel and the kingdom to go forth, but love for you as well. Um, so you are part of a great 
movement of prayer, a city to city we pray for our church plants. You're also a great movement of love, that you have a pastor that loves you to tears. And that is something of a framework that I'll be talking a little bit about, about why lament is so important to our call to love. But let me start with this. This is a very famous passage. Um, it's expounded in three different Gospels. Um, so it must be important if three of the writers of the Gospel wanted to include this incident that Jesus has with this person. Now, all three have different ways of describing this young man. Some describe him as young, some describe him as a ruler, but all of them describe him as what? Rich. And there's this kind of outstanding thing about this person that he is rich. And for all intents and purposes, when I look in this room, it looks like people like you. When you look in the mirror, you're like this rich young ruler. He has it together. He's beautiful. He's wealthy. And he's this spiritual person. So if he were to come to reunion, you'd be like, yes, he fits. Peter, not so much, but he fits. <laughs> I'm so insecure. This is going to be part of my whole, my whole time here. I'm going to be working out my insecurity. But anyhow... He looks great. So he goes to Jesus, and this interesting question that he has in his heart and mind is, what do I still lack? And I don't know his heart. Commentators don't really fully know his heart. But when he comes to Jesus, he has this question, what do I still lack? And if I was in that audience watching this encounter, I was like, are you kidding me? What do you mean, what do you still lack? And I think there's something important in there. Because I think everyone in this room, in the middle of the night, or even throughout the day, at your cubicle, or you're working from home, as you're showering, you're coming out of the shower, you're going to bed, you have that overwhelming theme of your life, what do I still lack? And you're haunted by it. We live in a culture that describes your lack. You can't get away from that question. doesn't matter if you're five years old, you're beginning to cognitively understand who you are, to the point where you're like in your 80s or 90s. And when I counsel people, it's always this question of, what do I lack? What do I regret? What do I have anxiety about the future? And this rich young ruler has everything. And here I am today because this is one of your core values. And why are you talking about this rich young ruler? Because I want to start here because when we see the rich young ruler, it's really seeing us in a mirror. And we might do that to ourselves, but here's a sinister part about church community or community engagement. We also see that in others. We play out that theme of seeing others and saying, what do they lack? I was taking the train over here because I had a flat on my tire. This morning I, tried to, I was going to drive here, and I realized I had a flat in my tire. And I was all like, oh, such a long trip to get here. But I was so glad that I took the train. And as I was observing people, the minute people walk into the train, what happens? All this gazing up and down, looking up and down. And then there was beautiful people, and there was... People like me, again. <laughs> and it was just like I saw people looking and judging. 
And I saw people, one woman, amazing, on the train was putting, I don't know what that's called, but she wasn't putting on eyelashes because she has eyelashes. But she was doing something with her eyelashes. <laughs> oh, mascara, sorry. She's like, mascara. <laughs> not only I'm not good looking, I'm ignorant. Okay. And she has her iPhone reversed doing, on the train doing her mascara. I was amazed. But as I was watching her, I'm, I'm sure there's a part of her saying, what do I lack? And we do that to others. When I was first dating my wife, you know, after that horrible date, um, she was going to do the triathlon. And I was praying to God, God, help me to know this is the one that I'm supposed to be with. And one of the things I prayed for is I want a godly woman. Just show me that this is a woman that loves God. I knew that she loved God, talked about God, but I said, please, just show me that she's this godly woman. So she was doing the triathlon. I was near the finish line. And then all of a sudden, she, you know, she's doing the running part of the triathlon, and she's coming over the hill, and our eyes meet. And I'm trying to get her attention. I'm like, and then our eyes meet. She has this beautiful smile. If you get to know her, she has dimples. She's beautiful, and she's glistening. And I'm just like, oh, give me a sign, God. And then I saw our eyes meet. You know what she does? She does this. And she's running. I was so moved. I was like, she is pointing to Jesus. I'm like, this is it. That's the sign. I said, thank you, Jesus. Look at her. Even in her running, she's pointing to you. And then when the race was over, we're talking. She's eating ice cream, and we're eating ice cream. And I asked her, I said, that moment when I met, I was so moved. She was like, yeah, it was so good to see you. It was great. It was a really tough run. When I saw you, I felt an extra push. And I said, I was so moved because when you were doing this, you're pointing to Jesus. And that was so moving. And then she was like, she looked perplexed. She goes, no, I wasn't pointing to Jesus. I was telling you I have one more lap. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, gosh, she's such an honest person. <laughs> she's so godly. She's, she's, even, she's so honest. But that's what we do. We put on these kind of things that says, oh, oh, oh they're good, or they're, they're spiritual, um, they're this, because we think that there's a lack that they have or I have that they need to be met. And here's this rich young ruler, encountering Jesus, not knowing who he fully is and saying, teacher, tell me, what is the one thing that I lack? And if you're in this church right now, you're like, you know, I... Yeah, I, 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 I struggle with what I lack. I would say something that Charles Taylor says. He says, it's not so much that we have come to a place in, in our spiritual lives or unspiritual lives where religion is no longer an issue. Because we are embedded with the desire for the transcendent. That's something very unique in all of us. That we want transcendence, but yet the more and more we push out God and saying God no longer exists, we actually reconfigure ways of feeling transcendence. And this rich young ruler is what Charles Taylor are called buffers. They're buffers against things that are transcendent. So it could be fame, it could be beauty, and it could be wealth. And he had all three. So these buffers are ways that we think, well, I will buffer my desire for the transcendent 
by what is eminent, which is what I can actually touch and feel that I can get now. And that was his delusion. He thought that if I can do all these things, then I will have a rich, transcendent, eternal life. Because he was focused on what is good. And also, what do I lack? And Jesus is looking at his delusion, and he's diagnosing his heart. And he asks him about these commandments that he's kept. And he's piercing his heart. He's looking at his heart, because what his heart is saying is that I can actually be good and actually can mitigate against this idea of what I lack by doing good deeds. Or in the NIV translation, what are the good things that I can do? But Jesus is like turning him a little bit with a clue. This is not the good things that you can do, but what is good? Only God, who is good. He's turning the what into the who. And this is which the rich young ruler missed the whole point. Because he deluded himself into thinking, I have this enchantment, I have this eternal life, I've lived a really good life, I lack nothing in a way, but just in case, I want to know. And the main problem with the rich young ruler, again, is how he defines good as good deeds. Now, if you're unchurched, or even if you are churched, I'm going to say something pretty radical. Christianity is unique. Very unique in the sense that it's the only religion where you can sin by your obedience. What? It's the only religion where you can sin for your obedience. Meaning that if you think my obedience warrants me come before you, then you're sinning. Why? Why is that a sin? Because you're taking apart your dependence and posture before God. You're basically managing your sins. And Dallas Willard calls that the gospel of sin management, where you create a distorted gospel or Christianity where you're like, if I can do all the things right, if I keep all the commandments, live a life that's according to the rules then I'm okay with God. And Paul and all the Gospels said that is absolutely devastating to your spiritual life. It's death. It's poison. Because it takes away the cross. Then you don't need the cross. But your desperate need of the cross is to say, and this rich young really did not understand, was the idea and his delusion that I have all these buffers, I have all these things that I need, but what he really needed was God. And knowing the goodness of God. And that leads to the idea of his diagnosis, but also his direction of where the gospel is. And here's this moment where I think is the key to the whole thing. He doesn't know he's broken. So Jesus said to him, if you will be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the, rich, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus is smashing two of the rich young ruler's assumptions. That Christianity is something you can add, and it's something that you can do. 
And here's this moment where he thinks, if I can just add, and if I can just do, I'm good. And he says, in order for you to be perfect, and that's why in the Gospel of Mark, it says that you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the Lord, you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But in that moment, he says, he looked at him and he loved him. In the gospel narratives, when Jesus looks at someone and he loves them, it's usually towards someone who's in pain or who is poor. Almost every occasion that Jesus looks at someone and says, I love them, or had compassion upon them, is usually to someone who's an outsider who's marginalized, someone who's poor, or someone who's in deep distress. He never does this to the religious leaders. There's not a passage where he looks at them and he loves them or has compassion on them. But here's the thing. Jesus looked at this rich young ruler and actually felt compassion and love for him because he thinks he was poor in spirit. There's a greater poverty that he did not understand and forgetting that the direction of the gospel is always, of course, love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, but also to love your neighbor. Why? Why didn't Jesus say, hey, just give away your possessions. Leave it all behind, follow me. But he says, leave all your possession and what? Give to the poor. Now the question is, why? This is strange. In actuality, it's not strange. That has been a provision through the, from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through Revelation that one of the biggest things that was broken in Genesis 3, which is the fall of man, was the broken relationship we have with one another. When you think of the word righteousness, what do you think of? Like, be righteous, you think of. No. Right? Be righteous. Like, oh, in the name of Jesus, thank you, Lord. Always praying. When you think of righteous, you think of holy. The Hebrew word for righteous is actually very different. Whenever you see the word righteousness come up in the Hebrew Bible, it's always about restoring right relationships. That's why when Job kind of makes appeal to God, he goes, my righteousness, and he always quotes a whole bunch of litany of things he's done for the poor. Why? Because he's saying God has a desire to right relationships. And he's saying to this rich young ruler, you don't get it. I have a desire for you to have right relationship with me. Most importantly, follow me. But you have right relationship with those who are different from you, the poor. And over the 20 plus years that I've done work in the city, I've always had a different spectrum of churches. A lot of churches love doing mercy work. They love volunteering at a soup kitchen. They love doing all this stuff. And it's great. It's a great first step. But really understanding that these are not just good deeds, but this is from the heart of God to right relationships. But oftentimes we don't use it to right relationships. We use it actually to hurt people. So you know what's very common that I get all the time? Like, oh, that was a great experience walking 
and doing this walk. And it was a great experience, like meeting people that are different. It's a great experience to be able to go to a neighborhood in the city where I can give food. And they always come back with this, like, my, but you know what was the biggest takeaway? They were like, it was so nice because it made me appreciate the things that I have. Wow, I go every week because it's like I'm depressed about my own life and I have like only like these things and then I go to these and I spend time with these people and I walk away going, wow, I shouldn't complain about the things that I have. Now, don't get me wrong, that's okay for your first encounter. But if that's the ongoing thing that you're doing, think about how that you would feel if someone said that to you. Say, so, you know what? I hang out with Russell. No, Russell hangs out with me. It should be more like Russell hangs out with me. Because every time I hang out with Peter, whew, I realize I'm good looking. I just appreciate how I don't look like him. Or some of you say, <laughs> or his wife says, oh, I love hanging out with Jamie's, she, you know, Peter's wife. Because every time I hang out with her, I just realize I'm so much more educated. I have such a good education. She has a horrible education, but I appreciate the education that I have. Thank you, Jesus. How do you think Jamie and I would feel? <laughs> Not going to look that good anymore. <laughs> we have taken what is, again, to move us towards the poor so there's proximity and relationship. In all the years I've done community work, I always emphasize that. I said, don't do things from afar. Don't do things once a month. But it has to be a heartbeat of your life. And this rich young girl have lost the idea of righteousness. Like my religiosity, my piety, and even my call to love my neighbor requires righteousness, righting relationships. So I always share the first way of writing relationship, spending time listening and looking. Every neighborhood engagement I've ever done, everything that I've ever done in the last 20 years is sitting down and getting to know people. New Yorkers are incredibly busy. I get it. But if you actually slow down to look, I teach this course called Neighborhood Advocacy Cohort and also this community engagement. We did a, an exercise where I say, every week I just want you to take one or two pictures and just write a quick one-sentence reflection. And if it moves you to actually inquire and talk to someone, allow yourself to listen and be curious. I'll never forget one pastor came back and said, in tears, sharing. He said, in the morning I saw this young boy who was obviously living on the streets. Took a picture. Prayed. And in the evening as he was heading home, saw the same child, teenager. And through the exercise, okay, I'm looking, now I want to listen. And he came to him and said, tell me your story. This rich, this young, young man was a gay young man who was kicked out of his home and just shared stories of all this trauma that he went through in the last five years in the city, where he came as an actor with all this hope. And then the passage started, started like really hearing, and he decided to change the whole ministry for an outreach. And then he started seeing more kids and teens and young adults in the neighborhood that needed a place to share. 
as we look and listen, then we move towards hopefully loving them. But every love affair that you have also requires a measure of lament. You never lament what you don't love. You don't cry over things you don't love. And then in that lamenting, and that's where this pastor felt his heart was beginning to lament. He learned to love this young man. Not as the basis of ministry to make his church look amazing, but he had a real heart. So I always say, that is why it's key. Because issues will always come and go. When BLM happened, everybody started becoming so racially aware. And it was great. Entry point, great. But there's not this, again, righteousness where you're moving towards relationship. It wasn't an issue for me. When I got a phone call right after the Joy Floyd, his mother called me and says, I need you to get on this block as soon as possible. My son just got stopped, pulled over by police. Crying. Went over there. Praise God. These police officers are awesome. Just pulling him over. We thought there was some issue. We identified him. I was there. I said, police officers, I'm just, I'm just here. And I knew some people in the precinct, so it helped. But it wasn't an issue for me. It wasn't something I put a black thing, black tile on my Instagram. It becomes something that's real because it's, you're relating, you're seeing, you're listening, you're loving, you're lamenting. And then what do you do? You lean in and you seek to liberate. And that's when things get really intense. Because the way things are set up, it's really hard because there's so much interest and there's so much power and there's so much powerlessness that the middle ground of entering in through a gospel lens to say, I want you to understand that they're worthy because they're creating God's image to be loved and lamented. That's my main job. That out of my relationship with these people, I'm coming up and saying, I want you to see them. These are not people. They're my friends. My wife went to a community meeting around these housing developments, and she came and she named every single person that's going to be affected by these housing complex. And she said, I am here on behalf of. To her, it wasn't an issue. It was friends. It was people where she cried over because she's helping them finding a new place to live because their rent went so skyrocketing high. Did things change? Absolutely not. But for that day, she said, I want you to hear them. I want you to hear their stories. This is their name. These are their children. And she held up a picture of them. I said, this is who you're displacing. These are not numbers. The rich young ruler lost sight of God's heart for the poor. Lost heart for the idea that in order to follow me, you have to kind of give up these treasures. Now, reunion church, I know it's hard. Jesus looked at him and said, I loved him because he knew how hard it was because he had all these possessions. There's nothing wrong with having possessions. But when it gets in the way of saying, follow me, then that's a problem. Because functionally, 
you're following this as your God. Now, for you, usually it's time, it's usually money, the two primary things that you have to give up. But instead of seeing as giving up, giving to God, and saying, I want to write relationships with people. And I'm not always there. I've been challenged in my own life. I still remember one time my younger son, Noah, we were on the train, and his panhandler came out and said, hey, and my, my son came up to me and said, Dad, give him some money. And I said, oh, excuse me, are you telling me or are you asking me? <laughs> and he goes, give him money, give him money. And I said, I've been doing this work for a long time. It's not the best stewardship of our money to give. And he goes, and he started, Dad, you have to give him money. And then he said something in my face. He said, what if he was me? And then he yells in the crowded train, yelling, are you Christian? <laughs> and I was like, no, you need to calm down. <laughs> you just need to settle down. He was like eight years old at the time. I said, you just need to settle down. He goes, all the things you taught me. He's a child of God. Are you Christian? Well, I was like looking for money. <laughs> But everything he said was right. But there was this thing in his heart. It wasn't like, I want to alleviate guilt. It wasn't, he's like, and that wife says it, what if this was me? And that's why God calls the poor. He says, I am relating to them because I'm the father of the orphans. How powerful is that? That when he does the Beatitudes, he goes, blessed are the poor. Happy are the poor. Reunion Church. My greatest desire is not that you know, after today, you all volunteer, hope in New York, you all get involved, but I want you to wrestle with God on this. How can I write relationships with people on the train? How can I write relationships together in our community? And the only way you can do this, the only way you can do this is you really know who you are before God, how poor we are before God, how generous he was to us. And it's fitting that tonight or today we have an opportunity, and I thank you, Russell, for just how Tim has impacted me. So he doesn't know this, but the other part of my story is I was a non-believer in college, and I used to go to Redeemer, and I was one of the most obnoxious people during his question and answer. He used to do the question and answer period at the end of service when he first planted. And I remember uh, just asking him really like X-rated, R-rated questions to him. And uh, yeah, like really obscene questions about sex and all this stuff. And, uh, and I always remember him being so gentle. And so, and then as years gone by, we became friends and um, I work with City to City, and I had the privilege of emceeing at several of his events um, because everyone knew how much I adored him. But he says this to close out for today's sermon. That's why this discipleship, the, the, the apostle says, with man, this is impossible, yo. This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How? He says this. Jesus is saying, I'm the rich young ruler. I'm the rich young man. I have riches beyond anything you've ever had. And Tim goes on saying, I'm going into a poverty deeper than anyone 
or anything has ever known. Do you get that? Why? Because Jesus says, I'm the rich young ruler, and I have given it all away. I'm giving it all away. Why? For you, for the poor, for you who is poor, the people who, lo- who would be lost otherwise. I'm doing it to follow you. Now you give everything to follow me. And if I gave away the big all to follow you, why can't you give your little all to follow me? I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't already done, he says. I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't already done millions and millions of times. Millions and millions of times greater and more than you. Jesus says, I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now why in the world can't you give away yours to get me? And Jesus is only 31 or 32 years old here. And do you know where he came from? He came from heaven. And maybe Jesus is looking at this young man. And the way Matthew Mark tells it is that when he told him these things, he loved him. And he will be stripped of his friends. He's going to be stripped of his relationship with his father. He's going to be stripped of his clothes. He's going to be stripped of his life. And he's going to be crying on the cross, I'm going to lose everything. I was a rich young ruler, and I'm giving away everything. Why? And who is he giving this money away? To the poor. He's always giving all of his riches to the poor. He didn't just tie this blood. He gave it all. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, who through you was rich, became poor. So we, through his poverty, might become rich. If that doesn't grip you, if that doesn't start there, then all of this is just good deeds that you'll be doing. But be gripped by how much he poured out for you. Let's pray. I don't know where anyone is here. I don't know where people's faith is. I don't know what they're bringing to this service. But I know precisely what you're bringing to them is yourself. You're not giving them a bunch of rules to follow. You're not guilting them to do things on behalf of mercy and justice. But you're giving them yourself. And we pray that may God just move in their hearts as they leave today, as they walk the streets of Union Square, get on the train in their neighborhoods, as a church, they will look and listen differently. I pray you move them to love those who are different, seek righteousness and right relationship, move them to lament in a godly way, and then ultimately help them seek to liberate the things that are broken in bondage. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.